Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Formation Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University, and my guest this week is Ken Shank. Ken is a regular guest here on the show, a uh, professor of New Testament for many years, and who's been an administrator at IWU and at Houghton College, and is an author of uh, over a dozen books and more articles beyond that. So just take a look uh, for him on Amazon for his writings, as well as his YouTube channel uh, at Ken Shank, as well as his Patreon page that you can get through there as well. So we're so glad to have him on the show. He's so prolific and so engaging and brilliant yet humble and specifically an expert on the epistle to Hebrews uh, from which we are studying a text this week. So our text this week is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Well, cool. We're looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. Would you be willing to read the passage, Ken? I'll give it a shot. All right, go for it. Verse 12. For living is the word of God, and energetic and active, and sharper above every two-edged sword, and piercing between the midst of, of soul and spirit and uh, bone and marrow and discerning of the, the intentions and thoughts of the heart. And the creation is not unseen before it, but everything is naked and, and exposed to its eyes. That is the, the word uh, with which we have to do something like that. So hard to translate. Verse 14, therefore, having a great high priest, having passed through the skies, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but having been tempted according to everything, according to the likeness of us, without sin. Therefore, let us approach with boldness the throne of grace in order that we might receive mercy and we might find grace for well-timed help. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, which is living and active, leaping forth from your right hand, executing, saving judgment for our sakes and for the sake of the world. 
And we give you thanks for the priestly ministry of your son, Jesus Christ, and that his, uh, his work, his intercession, his presence with you gives us confidence and boldness as we come before you, even in this moment, praying, uh, asking for the timely help of guidance with our own words as we study these uh, written words that bear witness to the living word of God. Lord, uh, we love these words. We love to study them. I learned how to study words like these from from our guest, Ken, uh, so many years ago and continue to learn from him. And yet, no matter how much we have learned and have come to know, uh, we still are in over our heads when it comes to the realities signified by these words. And so we ask that as we make use of our human capacity for study and explication, that your spirit would be at work for that which is beyond our capacity. So, Lord, we entrust ourselves in this time to you in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hey, so where do you want to start? There's so much here and only oh, five man. verses. But. Such a rich, 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 rich passage. Love it. I don't know where to start. I mean, Word of God is the, you start with exegetical for the first phase of our journey, right? Word of God. What is the Word of God? Is that a reference to Jesus? Um, I saw that um, uh, is it Madison Pierce uh, recently gave a paper in Europe arguing that it's Jesus that this is referring to. I've for years I've not gone that way. For the last thirty years, I've taken Word of God, the Logos of God, in verse twelve, not to refer to Scripture. Uh, had someone asked me that recently after I did my podcast on this exegetically, uh, asked, "Isn't this Scripture?" I mean, it, it could include Scripture. It could include Jesus, I suppose, but. I've taken word of God here in a in a very broader a broader sense. Anything that is uh, an expression of the will of God, um, when God speaks in Genesis, let there be His words. You know, His words do not return to Him empty; they accomplish what they set out to do. Isaiah fifty five eleven. Although that's that's not um, it's a different word for word in the Septuagint there. But anyway, sorry, I'll control myself. Um, oh, please don't. Go ahead. <laughs> it's too good. But I'm not, I, I mean, I, I'd asked this question when I was working on my dissertation, you know, what is the word of God in Hebrews? And I mean, Jesus would be far more of a contestant than scripture, I think, because, you know, we, we use that expression, the word of God and think scripture. Um, I think in the context of Hebrews, word of God would have had a much deeper, I don't, not, that, not that it isn't deep with regard to scripture, but it would have, have a much a much longer history, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. You think of even like with the Psalms or even just specifically Psalm 119 in the background, when the psalmist speaks and has all these roughly synonymous terms, decrees, words, sayings, utterances, precepts, you know, they're not all the same laws. Right. And like, it seems to be referring to the Torah, right? Sure the books of Moses, as it were, but it's not unaware of the fact that 
the Torah itself narrates God as a character speaking and that those events of God speaking predate the giving of the Torah, right? Sure. And, and the awareness of God as one who would continue to speak through a prophet. That would be on the radar of the psalmist, perhaps, or at least later singers of this, of Psalm 119, whatever the original author had in mind. And then furthermore, and this is very relevant for the text right here, an awareness that God's word is still to come, a kind of word of judgment, a declaration where God's going to give account and say, because there's that line about us giving account, right? Where is that? Yeah, that's uh, verse 13 at the end. It's difficult to translate. But it's helpful because it, it shares a root with the word logos. It's almost right? like a mini inclusio, a binding 12 mm-hmm. and 13 together. The word of God is living and active, and then it ends with, with which to us is the word. Right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I guess I would define logos in Hebrews. And again, this is a matter of debate. I would de- define the logos and the word in Hebrews as the will of God in action. Oh, I like that. Like when, when your parent says, I'd like to, or somebody says, I'd like to have a word with you. You know that there's going to be some, some action is going to be, or some act is going to be per- performed. The will of God. The word of God is living. And, and this, of course, I would say, again, feel free to push back because, you know, you can't you can't throw a rock and not hit a, a different opinion on on these interpretations among scholars. But um, there's a judgment context here, it seems to me. Um, in fact, yeah. when, when I outline Hebrews, I would put 12 and 13 with as the conclusion of what came before and 14 and 15 as the beginning of what comes after. Yeah, uh, me too. I found the lectionary breakdown incredibly irritating uh, this particular week. Usually I keep my annoyance with the lectionary choices to myself because I don't want to undermine the whole conceit of this podcast. But <laughs> this particular week, I just need to be honest, like, come on, that's just, they're just trying to get two really great passages together, right? So they're giving us the end of one and the beginning of another one, right? Basically. Peanut butter and chocolate together. Exactly. So, So 12 and 13, I think, is the conclusion of the don't be like the wilderness generation whose corpses died in the desert. Go on into his rest. Keep entering his rest until we finally enter his, his rest. And then uh, in conclusion, and by the way, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. The word of God is everything's exposed and you can't get away from it. You know, uh, kind of, a, <laughs> That's kind of a, a thing. So this is, I mean, some people don't like that flavor of Hebrews, but I think it's what he, Hebrews is. You think punishment was bad under Moses? It's going to be really bad under Jesus because Jesus is greater than Moses. Right. The, ar- the whole argument hinges both directions, that Christ's greatness stretches back to, in some ways, stretches back to creation, is superior in terms of these sacrificial meanings, which is what Hebrews is known for, the superiority of Jesus to say Aaron, right? But the correlate with that is the superiority of Jesus to, as you say, Moses or any of the prophets when it comes to declaring God's coming judgment as well. So it has two that it's two sides to the same coin, right? Yeah, and um, I was thinking back in three seven. You know, therefore the Holy Spirit says the Holy Spirit has a word for you. You know, lege, right? The yeah. verb form of logos. Yes. Right. And there's other other speaking, of course. And so this word, this word for you, it's a word of, as you say, blessing, but it's also a word of warning. And that word is living 
and it's active and you can't fool it. It knows the thoughts and intents of your hearts. It can tell the difference between, uh, and of course, this is, we can get into some great philosophical, theological discussions about when a temptation becomes a, a sin. You know, how long do you think on something before you cross that? You know, what, what, how does the sword divide between the thoughts and intentions of the, of the hearts? Is it, are you just thinking about how pretty that other person is who isn't your spouse? Or have you become intentional? Um, I'm probably overreading that d- distinction, but the, the sword of the word can tell that difference and know when you've you've blurred into that. Well, let me ask about that. Let, we can camp there for a little bit because it seems to me that the flow of our conversation naturally has us focusing on 12 and 13 with a backwards look so far. So in after the break here in a moment, we'll switch to 14 to 16 and with sure. a more forward look to sure. the argument to come. So that, that's a natural division. So let's camp out there for a moment because that's the one part of this passage I've always been curious about. So a lot of translations don't, don't imply the separation of thoughts and intentions. It just, you know, like here's one version that I've got open is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So their thoughts and intentions are being used as kind of a grab bag of the things in your heart. Whereas I heard you, and this is often how the Greek appears to me without much expertise that there's a, there's a dividing going on here. It's actually dividing between these two things. That's a contrastive chi, the word and there being sort of contrastive thoughts is one thing. And even thoughts is a little tricky as a translation, right? And through Mason, if I'm pronouncing that right, just because it has the thum, the thum hiding in there yeah. means this is linked to desires yeah. or even emotion or feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure thoughts is actually the best way to translate that. The urges and, and thoughts or urges and intent. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And then Ennoia, the next one is thoughts, I think would be that, the, the that one feelings works. inside and the thoughts inside. I mean, I'm, I'm etymological fallacizing, but, but playing with it. Yeah. yeah. So do you see that as contrastive, like, you know, dividing mere desire from a, a kind of an actual thought where you've consented to it and you're making a plan or is that not how the grammar or the language well, I, works? You know, there? I, until someone asked me to actually write a commentary on Hebrews, I feel like I'm in the midst of falling off the log toward seeing it as contrastive. I've always seen it as contrastive. I'm not, I wouldn't want to sign my life away on that. Sure. But I've always tended to see, I mean, what, what else is this sword doing? You know, swords cut, swords separate. I mean, that's what swords do. They, they right. rent asunder. Well, um, and the, and he's explained the pre the image in the previous line is, Joints and marrow, yeah, and division of soul and spirit. I mean, these the, the this division. It's the whole that all of the imagery points to a separating of two things. So, for the analogy to work, it implies a separation of these two as well. I mean, um, I, I I do remember reading somewhere. I don't remember where that that the point is that the the sword can d- divide things that can't be divided. Right, soul and spirit. How do you tell the difference between that? In principle, they're different. Yeah. But but and and of course you know I you probably know that that I, I see a, an awful lot of superficial parallels between Hebrews and Philo. It's one of those where I've said it's a drip, drip, drip. There is no single place in Hebrews where you could say, ah, there's Philo. But man, there's a, a high 
number of superficial kind of of coincidences, so to speak. Mm. Um, I'm not going to argue that. But um, soul and spirit in Philo, and I'm not sure that Philo is entirely consistent, but the, the, the spirit is the soul's soul for Philo. Ah. So, so you can make a distinction. If there, if there are seven parts to the soul, the spirit is the seventh, the innermost sanctum of the soul, so, something like that. And the, the outer parts of the soul blur into the animal parts of us, you know, that, that are more, we would call them more biological probably today. Again, I'm not trying to make a, uh, any kind sure. of a claim there, just that in Philo, the spirit is distinguishable, although overlapping with the soul as a, as a kind of precedent. That at least indicates that Hebrews is being written in a milieu where there's a, a rich tapestry of these uh, sort of transphysical properties of a person. And the, the drive of the, the, the thrust of this text in terms of extolling and offering warning uh, in terms of the power of the word of God, the, the will of God in action, is that the will of God in action can slice right through all the things that all the crap. for us are experienced as holes. What's that? All the crap we come up that's with, right, our, all, of our, right. all of our rationalizations, the logos cuts right through them and gets right to the heart of, you know what's really going on with you here, Ken? I mean, you're blah, blah, yeah. blah, but this is what's really going on with you, Ken. I'm, I'm theologizing a little bit here, obviously. But well, the text invites it. <laughs> I should also say, you know, again, maybe I shouldn't say, the, the logos is, of course, replete within Philo. And there is this function of the logos as the cutting logos. That is one uh, of the functions of the logos. By the way, there's also a parallel in the book of wisdom, chapter seven, 17, I'm sorry, which I think Hebrews has a clear allusion to the book of wisdom in chapter one. So the author of Hebrews, I think, very arguably knows the book of wisdom. But um, wisdom 17, the destroying angel in Exodus during the Passover, the destroying angel leaps with the sword. <laughs> With the sharp sword of command. Wow. I think that might have been behind my prayer. I think I did say leap. I think I referred to <laughs> the word leaping from – I'm sure it was influenced by you pointing that out to me years ago. The, the, the resonances with the Book of Wisdom are very strong. Well, that's very, very helpful. I think it's, yeah, a little threatening, but also meant to sort of offer a – well, Hebrews is a little threatening, you know, don't, yeah. don't let your corpse die in the desert. <laughs> yeah. Where's that? Uh, chapter three. Um, chapter three. Was, did not their corpses all, where is that? Verse yeah. 17. To whom did he, uh, did he uh, endure for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the desert? There's a threat. Yeah. I well, think. having expressed my annoyance with the lectionary i'm now kind of grateful actually it's maybe a nice pairing because this sure feel the burn of that threat and now then this word of comfort that's offered in the following verses so let's take a quick break and take a look at those and we're back welcome back to fresh text here with my guest ken shank and we're looking at hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 16. Let me read just verses 14 through 16 to get those fresh in our ears again, and we'll focus on those for this second segment. Since then, we have a great high priest having passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
let us hold fast or firm the confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable to sympathize with our weaknesses or infirmities, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are without sin. Let us then, therefore, with confidence or boldness, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace unto timely help, fitting help, or help in a time of need. I don't know how to do that. Well-timed hope. Well-timed hope. Ooh, I like that. Well-timed hope. Let's start there. Boetheon. I don't know that word. Help. Help is that help? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then you, you Chiron, good time, good timing. Yeah, that yeah. one I that one I could see, but well timed help, timely help. And if you want right? to, if you want to stop there, or start there, I mean, um, let's do it. I, per, I personally take the help here to be atoning help primarily. I mean, I don't, I don't think Jesus is adverse to taking our requests for finding our car keys either. But in its context, it seems yeah. to be referring to. So we're, we're coming. Jesus, he will cover your sins, right? Yes. I, and I've, I've long made a distinction again, rightly or wrongly, even in Romans eight between the intercession of the spirit and the intercession of Jesus. Again, yeah. I think Jesus is fine to take your prayer for, you know, subway to be open this late, you know, but, but, um, my sense is that the Holy Spirit, in Romans 8 at least, is much more the any kind of help uh, referent, whereas Jesus is the please forgive my sins uh, kind, kind of help. That's just the way I've inferred from Romans 8. And, and here, I think, as you said, the help that is specifically in mind, because again, let me, let me, there's so much uncertainty about Hebrews, but it seems to me that for Hebrews, Atonement has to be central to the concern of the audience. Some, right. Somehow or another, for, for, we, can, we can speculate, somehow or another, the audience is worried about getting atonement. And Hebrews is basically to say, you don't need the temple, although the temple is not mentioned in Hebrews. You don't need the Levitical Tabernacle, system. right? <laughs> yeah, you don't need the Levitical sacrificial system. The Levitical sacrificial system never actually took away sins. It was always Jesus. You know, and so you don't have to worry about whether or not, and we can come up with all kinds of scenarios. Uh, you don't have to worry about where you're going to get your atonement from. Jesus has got you covered. It's done. It's finished. It's over. You can go to Jesus, approach with boldness the throne of grace, and your sins are taken care of. So help, well-timed help, especially when it comes to reconciliation to God, forgiveness of sins, atonement, etc. That's kind of the way I approach the the help here. No, that's helpful. I'm glad we started right there because then it, it makes it clear what the payoff is here. And I like how you keep saying, however you speculate what the audience was. So Jew, Gentile, first generation, second generation, before the temple, after the temple, all those questions, which are interesting and would affect the way we might take certain tricky passages. Although a core one like this, which is almost, I don't know, kind of thesis statement for the second half of the book, right? In a way, yeah. or second yes. two thirds. Yes. This is the beginning of the central yeah, the uh, body teaching section of Hebrews. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an inclusio, sorry to use that word again, Please. Uh, a, a partial inclusio 
between uh, 14 and six through 16 here, and then 10, 25 to uh, 10, 18 to 25, where you have almost exactly the same language. Let us approach, let us hold fast the confession. So it's kind of like, you know, we're all, I don't know about you. I'm always annoyed with Zoom these days. It says this, this recording has started. This recording has stopped. You know, that, well, Hebrews gives us an announcement. We are now beginning to talk about Jesus as high priest. We have right. now finished talking about Jesus as high priest. The whole central exposition of Hebrews is bracketed by these incredibly powerful, let us hold fast, let us approach um, Jesus is a great high priest kind of verses at the beginning and end of, end of, in my opinion, not just my opinion of this big central section of, of Hebrews. Yeah. So chapter 10 verses 22 is let us draw near and 23 is let us hold fast. And you get some of the same language, right? The, the, the confession, the language of confidence, so yeah, it's very, very parallel. And so then that's really the core of the book that runs from yep. 414 to, and then the, the third let us is the signal of the rest of the book. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, which is kind yeah. of the signal. Okay. And now the rest of the book's kind of that, right? Very in practical. A way. The last part is very much applicational. So then that's the sort of transition, right? So this is good. This is kind of setting us up because this is only the second episode in our uh believe about seven part series on Hebrews. And so I, I was as interested in your take on this passage as I was on uh, the whole book of Hebrews, although I can't expect you to, you know, give us your entire take on Hebrews. And, and maybe you just want to leave aside these speculative questions. We can get into them or we can not get into them. I'll leave that to you, Ken, that, that the audience, your, your take would be that the audience clearly is concerned or anxious about atonement. I, I don't see how that can't be part of the equation. Because yeah, otherwise convincing them to care about atonement, it's kind of the wrong argument if that's what he's trying to do. Right? <laughs> I mean, it seems so, like someone who already has a notion of, you know, a God um, who has standards uh, that must be met. And when they're not met, he also provides the means by which uh, we can be reconciled with him. Like that's the, that's the thought world that precedes the book. And it's just assumed. Right? I mean, you could argue, argue it's just, it's just a fun thought experiment. You know, um, it's just a sermon where the pastor says, I want to talk about something theological, you know, today I'm going to talk about Jesus, you know, and there's nothing in the lives going on that relates to it. That has not seemed, seems doubtful, be, you know, <laughs> what Hebrews is about. And I think for those who date Hebrews very late, I mean, I, I would, I, I divide up, dating of Hebrews into three categories. Uh, those who see it as be, be before the temple was destroyed, in which case, and, and probably your other guests, most of them are going to fall into that category. It seems to me that if Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed, even though it doesn't mention the temple, this is fighting words. You know, okay. if, the, if the temple is still standing, then this is, don't go to the temple. You don't need the temple. You know, this is almost like, you know, meet me in the alley. I'm going to, I'm going to cut you, you know, kind of language. Even for diaspora Jews who only go to the temple a couple times in their lifetime, it was, there was still a kind of piety of the temple as it were. I mean, it probably varied, but I mean, let's say that when, when, let me put it this way. When Caligula tried to set up a, a statue of himself in the temple, even Philo, uh, again, there's a little interpretation here. Even Philo goes ballistic, you know, Mr. Really the heavenly ideal temple is what's right. important. I mean, you know what I mean? Don't mess with my people. You know how it is? Yeah. You know, 
Okay. Even, even if I make a metaphor of it, don't mess with my stuff. And that's Philo off in Alexandria, not even in Palestine where the temple is. Okay, so, so temple I'm, I'm, politics. I'm, I'm interpreting Philo. There's a little interpretation of Philo. I should warn. Yeah, but, but, but temple politics were a, a known thing around the Mediterranean world. What's going on with the temple matters, at least in, in this vague sense of identity and and that so about thirty eight I think is when Caligula I, I think there's a shift that makes sense I think there's a shift you know around that time where it's kind of like I can mess with my brother but you can't mess with my brother you know I can make light of the temple but you can't make light yeah <laughs> anyway I could be wrong there's a lot of interpretation go, going on here um, but um, I personally fall off the log in a post seventy where this is a kind of a conciliatory thing why are you worried about the temple. Temple's gone, but the temple was never made to take away sins. Jesus was okay. always the way that God intended for sins to be taken away. So stop crying. You know why are you why are you so worried about where you're going to get atonement from now that the temple's destroyed? Jesus has provided much more positive, much more uh, conciliatory. But again, there's uh, th- let's not focus any more on on that. But on either of those takes, the assumption is there's a there's some kind of attachment to the Levitical system and some anxiety about its function and whether it's because it's there and it's this temptation of a divided loyalty or whether it's been lost and we're wondering what replaces it. Either way, the argument kind of works. Only, only, and this is just my opinion, only if the temple's destruction is way in the past is this argument completely unrelated to the to the okay. in my in my opinion you can and that would a, be the third option would yeah, be like third option really late okay late first century early second century you know we're having a theoretical discussion about something that hasn't been around for decades you know that that got it I mean, okay the t- tabernacle to me has to be a cipher cipher in one way or another uh for the jerusalem temple it'll be interesting your other uh uh guests may completely disagree with that which is part of the richness of the podcast yeah, well, it's funny, Ken. You, 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 of course, could always say that, but you're saying it more now that I have you here on Hebrews. Now, some of that's your commendable humility. Another of it is your uh, expertise in this field means you're you're aware of where all the landmines are. Sure. But I think the third is Hebrews is an especially mysterious book in the New Testament, right? And yes. it's susceptible to widely variant interpretations because without we can't, father without mother without genealogy <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so yeah even that melchizedek he's like the author of hebrews is like melchizedek huh oh that's funny and some of it's just that we don't have as much ex- a direct contextual information similar in a way to and maybe you wouldn't agree with this but try try this thought out similar to first john in that regard but what we have with First John is we have two other epistles, and we have a gospel written either by the same person or clearly in the same circle. So we have other texts to play off of to sort of triangulate and try to suss out either the uh, the author or the audience. Is that maybe one of the – it'd be like if all we had was First John. And First John already is a total landmine of different interpretations. Think of how much worse it would be if you didn't have at least some of those controls – that kick in from those other texts that set some limits on the possibilities. So is Hebrews kind of an, an especially contested text in the new Testament in your experience as a, as oh, a yeah. scholar I mean, it's, and student it's, it's of it? A, 
aspect of New Testament study called reader response criticism, where you study not what the text meant, but how people interpret interpret the text. I mean, Hebrews is like a canvas on which many, many paintings <laughs> can and have been drawn. Um, and it's very difficult for me, you know, the older I get, not to eat the cake, so to speak, you know, rather than let me be disciplined and just describe the cake to you. You know, it's very, very hard not to to uh, to begin to, you know, well, I'm going to I'm going to vote for Apollos, you know, in the kitchen with the candlestick, you know, or whatever. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Let's uh, let me ask a few more questions, and then we'll take a quick break. Um, I did want to ask about the language here in, well, it's in 16, but also in, in 14, there seems to be a mixing of metaphors here, or uh, maybe a better term is a conflating of idioms between kind of royal language and priestly language, or if you prefer to use different terms, offer them, please. So I'll just set that out for our listeners and for you, and then I'd love to hear your response about how these relate. So you have high priest in 15, but son of God in 14, son of God being a more royal term in the scriptures. You've got temptation and sin language, which again is in the atonement kind of category. But then you have this image of drawing with confidence near to the throne of grace. Now, there might be a way to see some temple imagery there. I think there is temple imagery, but throne is very straightforwardly royal imagery. And even the language of mercy and grace, I mean, now I'm way overdoing it, but those terms could be thought of as more royal or as more sacerdotal, depending on how they're being used. So I'm just really curious how you think, is there... Is there any significance to that observation of mine? And which one's kind of in the foreground, as it were? What, what's going on there? Well, there is an outline of Hebrews. It's not the one I've fallen off the log with, but there is an outline of Hebrews that makes a lot of sense that sees 1 1 through 4 13 as focused more or less on the sonship of Jesus. And so that would see those first four ish chapters as, as more royal. Okay. Uh, in there. And so then we would see here in the verses that follow 14 through say 510, a transition to talking about Jesus's high priest. Okay. And so it would make sense for there to be an intermingling of those two themes because we're transitioning from the more royal motifs to the more priestly motif. So the confession, what is the confession? Let us hold fast the confession. Uh, we can speculate that there are the author, the audience of Hebrews may have very well confessed in worship that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, mm. If this is a, if this is an actual confession. And then in chapter five, one through 10, you have the same one who said, you are my son today. I've begotten you also said you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So again, transition between okay. that kind of, and now we recap from chapter one, you are my son today. I've begotten you. And now moving on to part two, you're a priest after the order of, of Melchizedek. And so, you might argue that having talked about Jesus, the King, son of God focus, we are now shifting to Jesus, the high priest. I, it doesn't work entirely because chapter three, verse one says, let us now consider the high priest, you know, but um, you could argue that, that um, there is a transition from a focus on Christ, a Christology of sonship to a focus on Christology of priesthood. And for me, both of those are the, they're two versions of the same 
Right. The same metaphor, as it were. I might also say that it's hard for me not to take this language of having passed through the heavens um, very literally for the author of Hebrews. We, We tend to take these things metaphorically, but remembering that heavens and skies is the same thing that yep. if you'd have given a pen to the author of Hebrews and said, draw the universe for me, you know, he would have drawn or, or she probably, he would have drawn a flat earth with, with layers of sky, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe three layers of sky with God in the highest sky. Paul says I was taken up into the third sky. Um, so, so I think for the author of Hebrews, he's literally going up through layers of sky to the highest sky where God's throne room is. And I also think, again, not everybody agrees, but that this is metaphorically the the cosmic temple, the cosmic tabernacle. That Jesus right. is sort of the, the outer temple. gates, the outer courts, the inner room, yeah. the holy voice, the holy of holies. Yeah. Okay. The most holy place is the throne room of God, which coincides with the Ark of the Covenant in in the in the symbolic earthly wilderness tabernacle. Right. And the Ark of the Covenant on the top has the mercy seat, which is not that far away of an image from throne of grace. Sure. I mean, uh, in the sense of seat had the notion that the Shekinah glory of God has rested here. This is God's seat of power. So from one perspective, the throne room is the, the seat of royalty in the cosmos where God is. But from another perspective, the throne room is the holy of holies, you know, um, that Jesus enters with his own blood. Uh, inside the veil. I'm glad you brought up the heavens imagery because even though the literal imagining of it might be foreign to many of us, nevertheless, in terms of understanding the text, that seems to be like the key common element. That was my hunch and I wanted, wanted to run that by you. The thing that the sonship and the priesthood of Jesus, the, the thing they have in common is their super heavenly character, right? That 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 there's a uh, a passing through the heavens. And that, I mean, that's already right there in chapter one. You've got this ascending, this exaltation at the right hand of God. So yeah, the mixing of metaphors or the the conflating of idioms, as I referenced it for the author of Hebrews, at least, is th- this uh, this mixing is a mixing that's appropriate to the subject matter because it's, it's like, who we're it's talking like, about. It's like Wayne's world. You know, we, we had we had him ascend to the throne room. He's being uh, appointed as high priest. Yeah, yeah, but they, it all goes together in the in the reality. And what for us needs to be distinct: priesthood, kingship. Although it's never so neatly distinct in the scriptures, anyway. Right? You've got David Even performing Moses. priestly activities, and yeah. <laughs> Moses is doing all of them. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a. I think I think I get a very literal picture here of okay. Jesus passing through the heavens, entering into the heavenly holy. I mean, we can debate whether it's an actual tabernacle structure in heaven or whether the highest heaven is the heavenly tabernacle. We can debate those kinds of things, but one way or another, he goes up through uh, the skies into the holy, most holy place, and and of course, God has to be in the most holy place of the universe, right? But anyway, that's the way I take it. Yeah. So then this is the question I want to pose as we go to the break as a jumping off point for our more homiletical reflections in the third segment is, so don't answer this right away. I'll, I'll pitch it and then we'll think about it on the break and come back. So what does it mean for us then to approach, to, to go toward, 
to draw near to this place so beyond us. So let's explore that when we come back from the break. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Ken Shank, and we're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Let's explore some sermon starters, uh, starting with that, that question that I posed before, and then we'll see where it goes from there. I, what would it look like to actually live this verse out? Like, what does it mean to do what verse 16 invites us to do? What do you think he has in mind, and how might we go about applying that? Well, first, this might be a trivial, this might be a trivial thing. I thought of something Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, where he's talking about being taken up into the third sky. And he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, um, mm-hmm. which, which seems to indicate, I think, that even he's not sure how the cosmology works. I know right. that's not what you were getting at, but, you know, the, the literalness of how the author thought of this, it doesn't matter. You know, we, we have access to God. Of course, this is a key Protestant uh, key Protestant understanding that we don't need an intermediary, you know, to get to God. We have, we have a bat phone, you know, we can go straight. We have the red phone to get straight to uh, straight to God. And I realized that's probably, well, of course I do in other generations. Maybe that wouldn't have been, maybe that would have been a debate point. By the way, my doctor father, James Dunn lectured on Hebrews at the Vatican uh, once got it, got a lot of controversy going. Cause he's a, he was a good old Protestant, you know, Scottish uh, Presbyterian. And this, this idea, we don't need an intermediate, an earthly intermediary to get to God, you know, that we can go straight to, uh, to God, um, you know, got a, some feathers ruffled, I think. Uh, well, during the uh, COVID crisis, uh, the Pope Francis uh, agreed. There was this great irony where uh, you had the, the Pope saying, you don't have to go to confession. God can forgive sins directly while a bunch of American Protestants were demanding that they meet together. It was just kind of, <laughs> it was just a beautiful irony of history. You know, I mean, but, I understand the rationale in both cases, but it was just very funny. <laughs> that all probably goes without saying, but one application Well, I think it's is important though. We, yeah. we have direct access to the throne room. Uh, we have direct, direct access to Jesus. Jesus is the intermediary, of course, uh, to God the Father. Yeah, it's not that we don't need an intermediary. We don't need an intermediary other than Jesus yeah. Jesus at the right hand of God. And that's an important distinction, I think, because yeah. I wonder if you say we people assume that we have access, and I think there's some truth to that. I wonder if we might have a kind of opposite problem where if we don't have – any sense of a need for atonement, then the approachability of God is an answer without a question, you know? Um, Whereas it may have been that the audience to which the book of Hebrews was written was in the opposite circumstance, right? This is one of the tricky things of applying the scriptures is they sometimes are solving a almost mirror image problem where they had a deep, perhaps a deep anxiety about atonement um, without an awareness of the approachability of God through Christ. Yeah, I mean, chapter, um, chapter 13 mentions strange teachings. I mean, they may even almost be tempted to get atonement in ways that would be ridiculous, you know, hmm. things that are arising, you know, in their context of how are we going to get atonement, you know, superstitious um, things and such. And, and then that right. does, 
but that does link to our world where the fact is, is whether people, I think, I think in most of our heads, we would be able to re- regard God as omnipresent and loving and benevolent and available. I think in our hearts, we don't always experience God as approachable. And sometimes our lip service to how approachable God is actually disguises the fact that we might actually still fear God deep down inside. And so I think the message still needs to be heard. And so why, so we get interested in all kinds of, you know, spiritual fads because we're hungry for, we're hungry for an intermediary. We're hungry for mediation. We're, we're looking for a teacher. We're looking for a priest. We're looking for something, you know, yeah. uh, maybe we, we're subscribing to podcasts because we're like, we want to feel connected to something. And so yeah. I think. I think the the message of Hebrews still speaks to us. It just there's a there's a little bit of indirection that is a little tricky to articulate. And there there are those who who don't feel God's love, don't feel God's grace. I mean, there, I would be wrong to even though we believe with our heads that we have access uh, to Christ. Uh, there certainly are those who don't feel it. Almost need someone to come alongside them, you know, to help them feel God's God's grace because they they just can't feel like God would really want to forgive them. But and and just to, we, I don't think we've closed the loop with the first half of this. Uh, right. Jesus does want us to succeed. Jesus is not looking for us to fail. The word of God is not wanting to chop us up. Jesus's clear preference is to be there to help. And this this statement, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. I think that's a key point of Hebrews that because Jesus is and it's a key part of our Christology too. Jesus fully lived the human experience. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted to give up, which is part of the Hebrews equation too, you know. Right. He knows, you know, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But as the next chapter says, he learned obedience through the things that he was tempted, verse 8. Or he learned obedience um, from the things that he suffered, uh, Hebrews 5, 8, which is not saying that Jesus was morally imperfect. It was basically saying obedience was necessary. Uh, it took an act of his will to be obedient um, as a son, even though he was a son, uh, just like we are sons and daughters. If Jesus can learn obedience, we can learn obedience. Um, right. But his temptations were real. His sufferings were real. They weren't just kind of fake, you know, a Eutychianism. His divinity is so big, you know, that his humanity is just a little drop in the ocean. You know, he's fully human. He fully experienced things. And so he can sympathize with us, uh, even though he didn't fail any of those tests. And the perfect tense here in verse 15, having been tempted and remains having been tempted. He stands oh. He stands as somebody who's been tempted. He, while he That's was on, still part of his identity. Yes, he, he experienced ah. temptation while he was on earth, but he stands tempted. The result of it stands with him. He still knows. Because the word for temptation is linked with the word for a trial. So he's the one who has, he's tested yeah. Right. That would be a variant of the perfect tense yeah. in English, something that's tested and true. Yeah. Right. It's part of his ongoing perpetual identity that he is the one who faced and overcame temptation. And then you get this double according to Kataponta, Kath, uh, Hoi, Moi, no, Ho, Moi, Ateta. That's a mouthful. Yeah. So according to all things, and according to likeness or right is that kind of yeah. yeah like like us 
He was yep. tempted like us in every, every way. way, just like us is the yep. standard way to translate, which is accurate. I think. Yeah. Um, without sin. I mean, if I were being asked to preach on this text and I were assigned these verses, I would probably zoom in very likely there, right on 15, the second half, you know, just, or the whole of verse 15, the, the sympathy, the compassion, right? The sum pathe, the suffering with, he's undergone what we have undergone and will undergo. He knows it, he gets it, he's been there. And then you could jump over back, you know, like I almost feel like I could start there, that picture of, of Christ sharing in our challenges our temptations, our trials, and then kind of going back backwards a little to say, so when, when we feel this, this warning, this warning is coming from the mouth of one who knows what it's like to have been there. You know, it's someone jumping down in the hole with you and saying, if you stay in this hole, you're going to get buried, but I know the way out. Come on. Right. It's so it's, it's a warning, but it's a warning in the context of not distance, but nearness. So his drawing near to us. And then at the end, then coming back to verse 16, okay, what does the response look like? And it, I mean, I can't help but think that this is an imagery of, of prayer, right? This sure. it's coming sure. toward, uh, yeah. it's, it's a bending of the knee. It's, uh, it's a lifting up of the heart, right? Yeah. And kind of finding ways to, to articulate, you know, what does it look like to ask for help? In temptation, it means asking for help, uh, you know, the strength to overcome, but also the atoning forgiveness when we don't, right? It's both sides of that. And we tend to be, we tend to be impatient with people who have difficulties we don't have. If something's easy right. for us, then we don't understand the person for whom, you know, it's difficult. Uh, whereas, um, you know, I always have felt like people who were difficult children who grow up to be teachers or whatever are far more sympathetic to difficult children when they then have the role reversal. Um, hmm. But J- Jesus was tempted like we are. He understands it. He's not, he's not some, I mean, he is perfect, but he's not that person who's like, well, I don't understand why you're struggling with this, Ken. You know, he sinless, but not aloof. He gets right? it. He's not aloof. Yeah. God is not aloof. Right. Right. He's not That's my he, sermon title. He's not bothered, you know, why are you coming to me again with this, Ken? You know, that's not, that's not the flavor of it. Yeah, readiness to help, a desire to help. No, that's, that's really good, hence that confidence. And, and even, I, maybe I don't want to camp on this too long, but I wonder if, you know, I don't want to build a mountain out of a molehill with this word paresia in verse 16, but, but coming toward with, confidence with yeah. boldness. Yeah. But this also can be just like plain speech. It's used in the book of John to in contrast with parables or riddles or images and figures. Now you speak uh, plainly, yeah. Now you speak plainly in John 16, exactly. And this word was used of Socrates that he spoke plainly, not playing games with people. And that that's a that's important I think for a lot of us especially cuz a lot of us are are afraid to pray because we feel like there's a certain kind of religious lingo that we haven't yet mastered, you know, and the thought that we were invited to speak plainly when we pray. Um, there's, I, I think there's other that. senses of boldness here, but I think that's in the mix. I mean, and that's linked with confessing sin where you're just like, I'm just going to speak plainly. God, I'm in over my head, right? God, I have failed. 
That's you interesting. Know? I hadn't I hadn't really thought of that that angle, but um, there certainly would have been a tendency with royalty in the ancient world to flatter to flatter to beat around the bush. Oh, king, live forever! You know. To, oh, still to this day, you know. And, uh, it's, well, I mean, especially with leaders. I mean, if any, people, it's really hard when you're in in any kind of leadership to know what's real in things that people are. I mean, even, I'm somewhere in the middle in administration, I, and there are still people who I feel like. Uh, are buttering me up when they sugar coating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but we don't have to do that with God. We can speak exactly. plainly with God. That's, and, that's it's, and, neat- and it's ironic because, you know, this is the highest of all highest heavens. You would think here flattery and, you know, self-effacement and gamesmanship and courtship, you know, don't would have be to do most it. relevant, but it's like all of that is irrelevant, which comes back to the word that cuts, right? It's like, yeah. he knows what's going on. Yeah. So <laughs> talk straight, you know, what freedom, what freedom that brings to be ourselves because God, you know, I've, I occasionally I've been paranoid, paranoid about people who might try to cause me trouble, you know, in the Academy, you know, but I've never worried about God. I've, I've never worried about <laughs> what God thinks of me or, or, uh, or, I mean, you know what I'm saying? God, God I already do. knows. God knows my heart. He knows my intention. I'm, I, that works two ways. I can't pull anything over you know, on God. But I mean, there's the, the incredible freedom of knowing that, that um, I don't even have to tell God anything. You know, he already knows it. It's more for my benefit than his, that I tell him even, or go to him with a request. Right. Cause that's where the help comes. Yeah. He's he wants ready to, to give help. it to me. He wants just to ask. give it to you. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I feel like there's a, just a lovely sermon or teaching on prayer hiding in this text that could go a whole bunch of different ways. Even the imagery of the throne of grace, right? The throne signifies the highness and exaltation and therefore the power to actually help you. But it's a throne of grace. It's a gracious throne that wants to give good gifts, right? I doubt very seriously that Hebrews has Esther in mind, but you might, you could give a sermon illustration from Esther here about Esther. Esther is nervous about going to the king because she doesn't know if he's going to raise his scepter or, or, or not. You know, we don't have to worry about that. Because the scepter has been permanently raised yeah. in the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. Well, there it is, right? <laughs> For a little poetry, right? But it's not just that God's like, yeah, who cares? No, it's I already have – I have officially yeah. once for all raised my scepter to all who come in the name of Jesus, right? The decision's been made. Once for all. Well, that makes me want to preach a little bit and pray a lot. So thanks. This was a really fun time. Thanks so much for giving your time, Ken. Always a pleasure. Enjoy it. Yeah. Well, thanks as always to all our listeners. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all our uh, patron saints for supporting the show. Appreciate you greatly. Go to patreon.com to become a supporter of the show if you haven't yet already. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.